This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Richard, I want to ask you about your column from this week, which covered many important changes to voting rights, uh, topics of voter suppression, and the integrity of elections in the United States. Uh, a, a lot of legislation to talk about. I think maybe let's start with the Freedom to Vote Act, which is in front of Congress. You suggest it may make it easier to actually cast illegal ballots, which I don't think is their intention. Can you fill us in on, on what's in it and why you take issue with the bill? Yes, I can certainly uh, give you some sense about this. The Democrats have the following kind of general ED fix about the way in which elections should work. And their basic position is that no valid ballot should ever be left uncounted. And so what they tried to do is to create a system of mechanisms that will ensure that more and more people can vote. Amongst the mechanisms that they want to put into place are the ability to register on the same day that the ballot is cast, and then also to increase the way in which uh, uh, mail ballots can be collected um, and dated and so forth. So if a thing comes in without a date on it, they're going to say this is going to be all right. Uh, They may allow for late counting. It's a very complicated statute with lots of given things. Uh, The problem that you get with a statute like that is extraordinarily simple, which is that vote fraud is a very serious problem, even though it tends to be poo-pooed, and that the only way in which you can make sure that the system has a certain degree of integrity in it is to make sure that the changes of custody are one short and two tight. That is, the more steps that you start to put into place between the time at which a ballot is circulated and a ballot is counted, uh, the more places there are for somebody who has a political agenda uh, to swoop down and to find this chink in this particular armor and to insert this. And so, for example, one problem that you could easily imagine is one that arises when if you decide without solicitation to send in mail ballots to everybody in the particular state or the district. And what happens is a large number of these will not be collected. Uh, so people could then swoop down and take these ballots and fill them out themselves and then insert them into the chain. And it's going to be extremely difficult for anybody to be able to protect the particular fraud that's being associated with that. Now, what do I mean by fraud? Well, there are two kinds of definitions, and it's important to keep them straight. One of them is what I kind of call a random fraud. Somebody catches you at an embarrassing moment and you start to tell a white lie in order to prevent yourself from being sort of ostracized. And these are not nice actions, but they're not going to be systematic threats. Uh, There are, however, fraud rings that are put together. And what this means is you get large numbers of people who coordinate their activities with a common purpose. And it's not just the random fraud, it's the whole system is done. This has happened in a number of very important cases. The workman's compensation laws in California were one example of that, in which there was an entire fraud ring, which included doctors, union representatives, individual plaintiffs, and so forth, that essentially managed to run up the cost of workman's compensation within the state until it was shut down by 20 or 25%. You're not talking about small numbers. That's the thing that you have to be worried about here. Now, people are going to say, and I'll just stop on this note, well, we haven't seen that much fraud. Uh, so therefore, why are you worried about it? Well, there are two answers to that. Well, one of them is you may not have seen it because it was successful and went undetected. And the second explanation is that if you change the rules and liberalize the situation, the past is no longer a prologue for the future, uh, because what will happen is people sensing the weakness in the system will, in effect, decide to be able to exploit it by doing things that they could 
could not have done before. Uh, so I think that the entire legislation has gone in the wrong direction on this particular point. Uh, we don't want to count bad ballots, and we know that this kind of risk can systematically arise. And so I'm very much opposed to this particular situation and think that the earlier rules, which wanted to have much tighter controls, earlier registration, no late-minute fixes of one kind or another, is a much safer and more sensible way to proceed. So you also mentioned um, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, Advancement Act of 2021, which I, I actually, in this context, I want to talk about the 2013 Supreme Court case, Shelby County versus Holder. Um, this all has to do with, well, requiring states to get preclearance from the Department of Justice before making any changes to voting practices. You mentioned that uh, Justice Roberts's um, uh, opinion on the Shelby County case uh, hinged on this idea of, well, things are different now than they were 40 years ago when it comes to voter suppression and the like. Um, is, that, is that an accurate uh, statement? I mean, should, should that matter? And and um, oh yes, I okay. mean it's, it, look, the, you know I've criticized the Chief Justice on many occasions. I think this is one of his strongest and most sensible opinions. The dissent, I think, by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, however noble she was in many other ways, was, I think, completely misguided. Uh, but this decision has been, of course, a thorn in the progressive side for a long time. But I think it's useful figure out what was going on. There was a Voting Rights Act that was passed, I believe, in 2006, which called for a 25-year continuation of scrutiny of the same states that were subject to scrutiny back in 1965, when the first Voting Act was passed. And that act had a five-year period associated with it, and it required preclearance at a time when segregationists were largely in control of the system, and that they would take and were known to take all sorts of steps to support press the uh, votes of African-Americans in the United States. Jim Crow was an ugly, inexcusable, terrible, horrible, no good system. I mean, there's just nothing that you can say for it. And it turned out it was you know, rapid. And the preclearance system was needed at the particular time because there was so much power and control that was going on that to try to chase after individual cases ex post would mean that the frauds and the scams would work for a year or two before you could ever do it. And remember, 1965 was a different year. That was the year of the March in Selma, for example. Uh, they had a ceremonial March in Selma, Selma recently, but rather different in terms of its uh, implications. Uh, the first one was for real, and at the Pettus Bridge, there were a bunch of thug cops uh, shopping people down. Well, what happens is they keep renewing it, and as the case for the controls start to get weaker, it turns out that the willingness to impose and becomes even stronger. So by 2006, if you looked at the enrollment of black and white voters within the state, there's very high black participation, higher than it is in many northern states. And what they do is they continue to impose these kinds of restrictions, even on organizations and on entities that had no history of segregation whatsoever. It was, I think, in the uh, Shelby County case, a facility, a new facility for a water bond or something of that particular sort, which was completely unknown at the time, and there was no history of taint or segregation. Uh, so what happens is uh, Justice Roberts asked the following question. Is the remedy that is given in this case proportionate to the wrong? And if it turns out that what you're seeing is a situation in which there is no visible systematic discrimination against black voters who, in fact, register at higher rates than white voters, what you're doing is you're imposing all sorts of restrictions that are of no particular good, which give the federal government a chance to engage in various kinds of chicanery itself. One has to remember that we don't know 
who's wearing the white hat and the black hat in all cases. In some situations, it turns out that the scoundrels are, in fact, the people who are running the state system. And that was certainly true in 1965. But it was not true by the time we got to the Voting Rights Act uh, uh, some 40 odd years later. And so I think, in effect, that Shelby County was the right kind of decision and that it is extremely dangerous to want to let the federal government or a federal court stop something on the basis of a showing of the occasional bit of discrimination in one case to put this fantastic set of controls, which is extensive and obtrusive and of no particular use in place. So I think that the John L. Lewis situation is a terrible piece of legislation, uh, as bad as the uh, voting rights thing to begin with. And so what the Democrats are pushing, I think, are two very bad bills. And I think that the importance of the filibuster in this particular case is that they cannot get these things through with simple bare majorities. No major structural reform, uh, in my view, should start to take place on wafer-thin margins where the minority party is unanimously opposed to what's going on and the vote is very, very closely divided. That's an institutional preference, I think, but it's one that I've held pretty consistently. Uh, a democratic society does not mean simple majoritarianism. There are some cases in which supermajorities make perfectly good sense. It's like having a constitutional amendment. You want to have a clear majority of sentiment in favor of it before you introduce major structural changes. Since you mentioned the filibuster, um, I take it you're not in favor of, of getting rid of it. Uh, however, there's a difference between, I suppose, the what, legislative filibuster and the judicial filibuster. Can you can you give us your thoughts on, on uh, uh, whether both should be kept, one should be kept, or how we should move forward there? Sure, I can. Look, the filibuster is an ancient institution in the Senate, and what it does is it reflects the following kind of uneasiness. Well, which is simple majority should not be able to make great changes. Well, then the question is, how far do you go in the opposite direction? Uh, the most famous early illustration of the problem was the debates over the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act at a time when the filibuster meant that you had to get a two-thirds majority in order to bring something to the vote in the Senate. And it was an amazingly difficult task and slightly heroic, uh, but the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed with 71 votes, which meant that you were four votes clear, and they had one or two votes in reserve. So one of the things that it did is it gave the statute a degree of legitimacy that it would not have had if it had been on straight party or partisan lines and had been wafer thin. It was then recognized that 67 is probably too high a barrier, and it was reduced to 60 votes, which is a major change in what's going on. And the question is, do you keep it? For legislation, uh, I always think that's a perfectly good idea uh, because there's nothing which says you have to pass this legislation this year. In fact, if I were to weaken the filibuster, it would only be with respect to repeals of existing legislation that impose regulation rather than the other way around. Uh, but in general, since you have to treat all of it the same, this legislation is something which I think you want to make sure has a pretty strong command in order to ensure its legitimacy. Judicial appointments and presidential appointments are very different, and they're different from each other, and they're different from legislation. Uh, so if you start talking about presidential appointments, in general, I think it's completely inappropriate to try to filibuster these things. I think a president, whether Democrat or Republican, is entitled to make sure that he has working for him in key positions, uh, people who need a confirmation vote from the Senate, and that it would be just crazy to keep these offices empty uh, because somebody
nobody wants to filibuster one or another. If you can't get majority control it's approval, I think it's perfectly legitimate to get somebody else in there. But in general, I think there should be a lot of deference given to a sitting president of either party to fill his own administrative staff. They have to hit the ground quickly. And the longer you delay this stuff, the more you're going to impede the operation of government. Judges are a little bit different. Uh, you have to have judges. So a filibuster, in some sense, I think is really ill-advised. If it turns out you've got an impasse inside the Senate, you can have 10, 100 vacancies take place, and you'll have nobody to fill them, and you're going to really hurt the judicial administration. Because even though we don't need to have a new supply of legislation, we do need to have a constant supply of new judges. And I think, therefore, that the filibuster, uh, at least at 60, is much too high. Uh, so then what ought to happen? I don't think that the situation on the vote should change, but I think the attitudes can change. Uh, the key difference is, is a judge is appointed last beyond the duration of the administration of the president that appoints him. Uh, so that what happens is you're appointed for an officer position, say secretary of state, you're gone in four years at most. Uh, if it turns out, on the other hand, you're a judge, you stay for 40 years. So I think the correct answer is that people are entitled to take into account serious ideological differences uh, and judicial philosophies in dealing with the approval of judges, which I don't think they ought to do when they're dealing with the appointment of, of political figures. But I think in both cases that the filibuster is misguided, but I think it's extremely important when you're dealing with legislation. And the Democrats kind of recognize this because their current move by Schumer, which will fail because he won't be able to get either cinema or mansion to go along with him, is we want to create an exception for the voting rights act. And that, of course, is the worst kind of ad hoc. Uh, then they'll ask it for something else. Then the Republicans will start to do the same thing. And what you really want to do is to ensure continuity across administration uh, so that people have a clear set of expectations of what is and is not proper. So these ad hoc fixes, I think, are terribly bad. My guess is he will lose in the Senate. But I think that the progressive have basically lost all their moorings. Uh, their willingness to get substantive legislation through is so great. Uh, that they tend to be very sloppy when it comes to the preservation of sound institutional arrangements. Let's return back to some voting rights issues. Uh, Georgia has passed the uh, the electoral, sorry, the Election Integrity Act. So it's SB 202. It was the subject of a recent President Biden speech. Uh, he came out hot the other day and called it, well, Jim Crow 2.0 and uh, a few other names for anyone who, who supported it. How, how on the mark was he? Well, I think uh, he got four Pinocchios from the Washington Post, not exactly an opposing paper. I regard that as one of the most disgraceful political speeches that I've heard in a very long period of time. Um, let's just start with what Jim Crow was about. I mean, anybody who's ever read Isabel Wilkerson's book on the warmth of other suns has a clear sense of just how horrific uh, the institutions of Jim Crow were, the bigotry, the arbitrary use of force in one way or another. She gives you the following illustration of somebody who's arrested for loitering. And it turns out this poor man had been working a 14-hour day. He's asleep in his own bed at his home. And the police come in and they decide to arrest him as a loiterer. Now, this gives you the kind of idea of what these governments were about and how the sheriffs abused their process and so forth. And the violence that was done on the private side and the chicanery done on the public side to make sure that voting would never take place. Segregation is a lasting scar and shame in the history of the United States. 
Well, when you call something Jim Crow 2.0, what you're saying is it's just a slightly sanitized carbon copy of the thing that went before. Now, you're attacking a Georgia statute, and the Georgia statute, if you actually look at it, Carl Rove has a nice column on this today, um, it turns out to be far more liberal with respect to voting than, say, the New York or the Massachusetts statute and many northern statutes. And then to go around and to say, well, let's take some heroes from the past, like, you know, Bull Connor, who was associated with all of the put downs in the New York Times case and so forth, or George Wallace or Jefferson Davis, is to simply to uh, show your own ignorance of the past. Uh, one of the things that's so terrible about the Biden position is it does two things. One is it demonizes sensible legislation that takes place today. You may disagree with it, but you can't call it obscene. And the other thing in a strange way is it softens the blow and the condemnation that justly should be given uh, to the real variety of Jim Crow. Because if the two things are the same and the current thing is not a real problem, are we supposed to infer that the earlier practices were not a problem either? So this is a classic case in which you want the president to elevate the discourse in the United States. And what we do is we have a third-ranked demagogue uh, coming forward and making these sorts of extreme statements. And in fact, it's even his own party could not defend him on these circumstances. Look, as we talked before, there's a real trade-off between fraud on the one hand and legitimate access on the other. And honest people can disagree one way or another as to exactly how much precaution we want against the one, given that it's going to also stop the other. But nobody in my mind could make the rash and silly patience of the president. This man has been an absolute disaster. We are now coming into the fact that he's almost a first year and everything that he has done has been just horrific. He's bad on voting rights. He's bad on Afghanistan. He's bad on inflation. He's bad on crime. He's bad on antitrust. You cannot think of a single redeeming feature associated uh, with this uh, administration. Uh, this bill will fail because he doesn't even read the tea leaves. And the last thing I think he wants to do is to relax the filibuster, because given the performance of the Democrats to date, it seems like a virtual certainty that they will lose the Senate uh, the next time round. Even the inflation issue will be enough to sink him. The COVID issue will be enough to sink him. There's so many independent reasons to vote against him that he ought to be very cautious. What the president really has to do is to sit down, take a deep breath, and ask himself, does he want to sound like a slightly deranged version of Bernie Sanders, or does he want to be the kind of, quote, prudent moderate that he was supposed to be when he won this election? He has been a huge disappointment, and this last speech is just another illustration of how far from reality this poor man has departed. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.